I invite you to turn to Luke. It's the fourth, or I should say the third gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, fourth chapter. Luke chapter four, and we're going to look at God's word in just a moment. But it would be a good thing for us to speak to the author of this text and ask him to bless our time in the word and to accomplish what he will in our lives. Shall we pray together? Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would guide us now into your truth. We're grateful to be gathered together here as one united body. Thank you for your mercy extended toward us through the cross work of Jesus. And we pray, dear God, that you would move us to the next step in our journey with you. And Lord, there may be a few here who have yet to enter into a saving relationship. We pray that this would be the appointed day, if it would please you, that they too would taste and see that you are most excellent. And so, Lord, we choose now to uh, enter into worship as we exercise our wills, hearing your word and responding, heeding it with great enthusiasm, because we know these things are good for us. They come from your good heart and your excellent mind. And so again, we ask that you be glorified. We pray it in your name. And Lord, all your people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I came across an article entitled, Who Do You Say I Am? And this comes from a church website. And uh, the author asks this question. It may seem strange for Christians to ponder this question, but I think it's worthwhile. He asks, do churchgoers understand who Christ really is? We would assume that we do, right? But there's a spectrum in Christendom of a variety of views, actually, on who Jesus is, his true identity and also his mission. The author continues, I have no assurance that a person correctly understands Christ's identity just because she has been attending church her whole life. Then he talks about a book he read. He said, recently, I read a thought-provoking book called The American Jesus. The book looks over the past few years, past few hundred years of American culture, and presents a number of portraits how American culture has misunderstood Jesus. So here are some of the examples. There's a lot of them. I'm just going to give you a few. For example, President Thomas Jefferson saw Jesus as, quotes, an enlightened sage. This was his view. He loved Jesus for his timeless wisdom, but Jefferson could not tolerate Jesus' messianic claims, Jesus' signs, miracles, and wonders. So what did he do? And don't do this, please. He took a a razor and sliced out all the miracles and all the things that were supernatural with regard to the person of Jesus. And so he reduced Jesus, in his mind, to an enlightened sage. Now, there are others who have refashioned Jesus into a, quote, sweet savior. They've attempted to make him more feminine, feeble, weak, and cuddly than sovereign. And then in response to that, another group came along to correct it. There's always the counter group, right? And this counter group in reaction refashioned Jesus into the quote, manly redeemer, full of testosterone, anger, passion, and fight. Jesus became a man of activism, a man of war, So this is one picture of Jesus, right? As Hollywood's culture developed, Jesus became the, quote, superstar or the entertainer. Within popular culture, he says, Jesus is nothing more than an icon, unquote. Well, I think we can understand, brothers and sisters, uh, why our popular culture has uh, misconceptions about Jesus. But what about those who claim to know Jesus? 
If you were to scan some of the surveys with regard to Jesus' true identity and Jesus' true mission, you would be disappointed to see that many, quote, Christians have a faulty view of who he is. What is his true identity? What was his mission and is his mission today through the church? Well, we're going to learn from this particular text, Luke 4, if you want to turn there, if you're not there, Luke 4, 16 through 30, that Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed Messiah. Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed Messiah. Now, as soon as I say that word Messiah, I want to stop and define that. What does Messiah mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Great question. Uh, This comes from uh, the Dictionary of Bible Words. It says, Jesus is identified as the ultimate anointed one, the one who will rule as king over a restored Davidic kingdom. So this Messiah is a king, in essence. This conviction is expressed in Jesus' title, Christ. Christ means Messiah. There's the Greek and the Hebrew there. This is not a name but a title that means the anointed. As the Christ, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises of a ruler, a king again, from David's line. Now, Peter got it right. If you remember that scene, in fact, why don't you turn with me, please? Keep your place in Luke 4 and go over to chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I want to look at just a few verses with you. Notice Peter's response to Jesus. God gave him insight here. Luke 9, look at verse 18. It says, And it came about that while Jesus was praying alone, Luke 9, 18, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, it is a great question, isn't it? Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered and said to Jesus, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Christ, again, is the word Messiah, right? So Peter got it right. Now you can turn back to Luke 4. That's who he is. Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed Messiah. I don't think we're going to have any arguments. We, We agree, right? It's in the Bible. But the question is, if Jesus is God's spirit-anointed Messiah, then what are the implications of Jesus' true identity and Jesus' true mission? Another great question. Thanks for asking that. Now I I can proceed. Thank you. All right, here's the first. There was only two. That doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, by the way, so don't get your hopes up. But here's the first implication. Jesus has authority to release the humble. Think about it. Jesus has authority to release the humble, the believing humble, of course. I want to unpack this with you. Look with me, please. We're picking up at Luke 4 and verse 16. Notice some of the background here. It says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. It says he came to Nazareth. And by the way, if you have your uh, pen ready, I'm going to give you a couple passages. We don't have time to look these up. But there are similar accounts. It's really the identical story, but with some further details, right? Uh, if you want them for your notes, it's Matthew 13, 53 and 58. Matthew 13, 53, 58. And Mark 6, 1 through 6. Mark 6, 1 through 6. If you were to go there, and we don't have time, 
but you would see the same story. And in those two passages, they seem to be a bit more chronological in sequence. It seems that Luke moves this event forward in his gospel because it reveals Jesus as God's spirit-anointed Messiah. And he wants to make that clear statement of Jesus' mission right up front in his gospel. Now, I don't want you to miss this because it's very easy to go right over this uh, clause right here. It says, as was his custom, verse 16, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now think about it. The religious leaders of Jesus' day left a lot to be desired. In fact, Jesus went after them because he didn't think they were, in other words, he felt they were derelict in their responsibilities as spiritual leaders. And so think of Jesus, who knew and lived the word better than they did, and yet he maintains a teachable spirit and shows up every week for corporate worship. I mean, we can blow right over that, right? I mean, he could sit in the pew and say, hey, look, rabbis, I know the word better than you. You're teaching the inscripturated word. I'm the incarnate word. I created you. I don't have to listen to you. But Jesus was humble and had a teachable spirit, and he came to worship Every week. Now, we could pass right over that, but I want to ask, well, what are the implications for the likes of us? Well, it seems to me that a, quote, boring preacher is not a good enough reason to skip worship. Or there's too many hypocrites at church is not a good enough reason to skip worship. Or I don't like the music, and on and on the list goes, right? Uh, We don't have good enough excuses to miss corporate worship on a weekly basis. You know why? Because we need each other. I can give the verses, you know, do not forsake the assembling and on and on. It's the right thing to do. But we need each other. There's something that happens when the body gathers corporately that is more powerful than when we're by ourselves in detached Bible study. Although that's a good thing too, right? So here's the Lord weekly showing up for corporate worship. And it says he stood up to read. Now if you go back just a little bit to verse 14, notice it says in verse 14... And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So in the region of Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, he's getting a reputation, a good one. And Jesus began teaching to their synagogues and was praised by all, depending on your translation, being glorified by all. Jesus' reputation as a powerful teacher spread throughout Galilee and including his hometown here, Nazareth. And as a result then... Here's Jesus in his hometown. It's likely that the rabbi, the synagogue official, whoever he was, asked Jesus, the hometown boy who made good, asked him to read the scriptures in this service in the synagogue. So what happens is, look at verse 17. It says, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and Jesus opened the book and found the place where it was written. So Jesus, it seems, selected the text here, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Then he also adds Isaiah 58, verse 6. I'll unpack that in a moment. So he picks the text here for this particular hometown audience. And by the way, the Jewish rabbis consider this Isaiah text to be a messianic text, meaning they would admit that it points to the future coming Messiah. But as it turns out, They don't see Jesus as the Messiah. All right, so here he is reading the scriptures in his hometown. People knew him well in the audience. And then it says, look at verse 18. And by the way, Luke is just giving a brief synopsis of this sermon. He's not giving the whole sermon. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is the text, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now here we see the three persons of the Trinity working in harmony. If I could paraphrase it for you, it would read like this. The Holy Spirit of the Lord God, God the Father, is upon me, Jesus. And so Jesus is carrying out God's actions by the power of the Spirit. So again, back to us, if Jesus is intentionally leaning on the Holy Spirit, what should we be doing? Intentionally leaning on the Holy Spirit, right? Leaning intentionally on the grace of God to enable us to live the life that we cannot otherwise live. Raise your hand if you can live the Christian life on your own. Anybody? We need God's Spirit, don't we? But do we call upon Him or do we just assume He's going to help us? He wants us to call on Him and to lean on Him to empower us and to guide us. That's the case in Jesus' life. You look at 4.1, you'll see it. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit or controlled by the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. Look at verse 14 again. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of what? Of whom? The Spirit. Then he says here, look again at verse 18 and 19. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, God the Father, anointed me, Jesus. Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed Messiah. Now, the question is, when was Jesus anointed by the Spirit? And you're firing on all cylinders this morning. Great question. If you look with me real quick, just back a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 21. You'll see it. You know this scene very well. 321. I love the sound of those Bible pages. Those are angels' wings fluttering all around. That's good stuff. 321, now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open, and notice, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Now you can turn back to uh, Luke 4. And so we have Jesus there getting baptized. We have the Spirit coming down. And we have the Father making a proclamation, right? Here's the Trinity working in harmony again. They always work in harmony. They always agree. And there's a model in terms of the relationship. I don't have time to unpack this. It's a great theology and it's very practical. That lofty doctrine of the Trinity, there's our model for how we should relate one to the other. Full harmony, full understanding, no disagreements, one uh, hoping for the best in the other. You know, it's just, it's a beautiful community. Now, Jesus came to this earth to carry out at least four actions for God the Father. And in the Greek, they're in the infinitive. What that means in your translation there is you're going to see the word to, T-O. You should see it there four times. Unless, of course, you have the Joseph Smith translation printed in Salt Lake City, and you may want to trade that one in. But look for those four twos, T-O. Hopefully you have that there. Uh, So here's the first one. The first action for God is this, to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, these are the pious poor, and I'm generalizing, but generally uh, they are more open to God. Generally they have a keener sense of their need because they're poor and they're living hand-to-mouth, right? One scholar observes... Their material deprivation often translates into spiritual sensitivity, into humility, and responsiveness to God's message of hope. You see, Jesus has authority to release the humble. And these dear ones are receptive. 
All right, that's the first two. Now, the second two, or act of God that Jesus performs, to, see it there, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, here's a picture of those in exile because of sin, and Jesus has the ability and the authority to release them from their sins, from sin's guilt, sin's penalty, and even sin's power, and ultimately sin's presence, as he takes us out of this sin-saturated world in due time. That's yet to come. Hang in there. And so they can be released from spiritual captivity. He has the authority to release the humble. Now think about it. What causes spiritual blindness? It's a three-letter word. begins with an S. Sin. That's it, right? That blinds our minds and our eyes. And here in this text, this uh, phrase, recovery of sight to the blind, refers to the light of salvation. The light of salvation penetrating and granting sight to those in spiritual darkness. Only Jesus has the power to do such a miracle. Nobody else can. All right, the third two, T-O. You see it? To set free those who are downtrodden. Here's where he brings in Isaiah 58, 6, which says this, to let the oppressed go free. Jesus is the spirit-anointed Messiah, and as Messiah, he has the authority to push back injustice. To push back things that are wrong, to push back evil, and to release victims of injustice. He has the authority to release the humble. There's a fourth T.O. You'll see it in verse 19. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, this is a picture of the Jubilee, when on the 50th year, you know this story, right, from Leviticus. In fact, I'll give you the reference. We don't have time to look at it. If you want to write down Leviticus 25, I encourage you to check it out later. Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. The Jubilee. On the 50th year, debts were canceled. Slaves were set free. And it's a picture of Jesus, the Jubilee, granting forgiveness and release from sin and salvation to the humble. That's the idea. Release from sin and its bondage and then salvation as a gift to the humble, of course, believing in Jesus. Jesus has authority to release the humble. Now, are you still with me? You're all looking alert. It's a great audience here. Everybody's eyes are open, and we're all with the program so far. You all had your coffee this morning? Great. Now, look at what happens. Verse 20. And Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. So by sitting, Jesus assumed the customary teaching position. And sensing the gravity of the moment, all eyes and ears were focused on Jesus. Remember, they're rooting for him. He's the hometown boy, right? He's back in his hometown at the local synagogue. And in verse 21, Luke says this, And Jesus began to say to them, this is the sermon now, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Luke, again, he's summarizing Jesus' exposition of Isaiah 61. Jesus is saying here to, to his hometown friends, the people that know him well and relatives, this scripture is being fulfilled in me at this very moment. You can imagine the thoughts racing in their minds. Some of them thought this was the height of arrogance. They know this kid. I've come to release the humble. Israel doesn't have to be judged. Now that you've heard me, you must make a decision. There's an implied imperative in Jesus' sermon. Again, we don't have the whole sermon. But he's speaking a very sober message here, and he expects them to respond. 
forgiveness and release, uh, release from sin can only be received by faith in God's spirit-anointed Messiah. There's no other way. This is the way the judge prescribed and ordained it. Now, some people like to fashion their own tailor-made approach to God. In other words, they try to approach God on their own terms. But he's going to have none of it. He prescribes how we must approach him. Think of the Old Testament. What was it all about when they had to approach the tabernacle in which God dwelt and they had to wash their hands and go through a number of rituals? What is God saying with all that? He's saying, I'm God, you're not, and there's a certain way I want you to approach me. So we need to approach him according to his terms. And his terms are faith in his spirit-anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He can save anyone who believes. Now, Moran Rosenblatt, uh, this is his testimony. It's entitled, I found the Messiah of Israel in America. I want you to listen carefully to this. He says, I was born in Israel... As a child, I was somewhat aware of God's existence, but lived a completely secular, ungodly lifestyle. At age 19, I joined the Israeli Defense Forces. In January of 1995, I moved to a new unit, and during the same month, we heard on the news of a suicide attack that took place where my old unit met. Twenty-two soldiers, several of whom were friends of mine, and one civilian, were murdered in this horrible event. That incident not only drew me further away from God, but also brought a lot of anger against the Arab people. In 1997, I left Israel, and through various circumstances, I found myself in the United States of America. A family that I knew invited me to their church. Notice the outreach by the people of God, those who believe in Jesus as Messiah. Upon my arrival at this church, I was surprised to discover the love that these people had for Israel and the Jewish people. That love gave me the desire to return again. At one of the services, the pastor made the statement, quote, In order to know God in a personal way, you need to have faith in Jesus. He was teaching from the book of Hebrews and said that my people, the Jewish people, although they revere God, do not know him personally. Now, although I was a secular Jewish man, this statement angered me. I thought he was giving an anti-Semitic message. I went to challenge the pastor about his message, and in response, the pastor challenged me to go and read the Word of God and then come speak to him. Well, upon arrival to my home, I found the book, Why Me? by Jacob Damkani. And as I opened it, I saw comparisons between the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, we would say the Old Testament, and the New Covenant Scriptures, again, we would say the New Testament, which captured my attention. As I read the book, the Word of God came alive to me for the first time. And I had no doubt that God exists and that Yeshua is the only way. The Lord has faithfully shown me His power and might. One of the biggest miracles was a change of my heart attitude toward the Arab people whom I hated. I was invited to share the story of my life at a conference with Jewish and Arab disciples of Yeshua, the Messiah, When I finished sharing my story, a Palestinian man approached me and introduced himself as Tasir Abu Sa'ada, a former PLO member. As I took a step back, he told me that he loves me. I was shocked. It was a minute later that I found myself shoulder to shoulder with an ex-enemy, praying with tears for the peace for our people in the Middle East. 
Tysir was sharing his story at the same meeting. And when he was done, he called me on the stage and asked for forgiveness in the name of his people for the killing of my friends. I asked him for forgiveness for the anger, hatred, mistrust, and not being able to forgive the Arab people. Only a true and gracious God can perform such a miracle. To God be the glory. Amen? God can change any heart, right? Even with anger and hatred and all that, God can penetrate and mollify and soften any heart. And so the church's mission today, it's really a modern-day extension of Jesus' mission. So we need to know what his mission is so we know what ours is, right? Because we are his body. And quite frankly, it's really simple, and yet it's very profound. Our mission is to clearly proclaim release from sin's debt through grace in Messiah Jesus. That's it. He can release the humble who believe on him. He gives sight to the spiritually blind, as we've seen. So the question is, are you clearly and compassionately and prayerfully sharing your faith with others? It's not really that difficult in terms of the content. It's just a matter of knowing a few scripture references and weaving them in a conversation and maybe writing out your testimony and internalizing that and sharing that. I find through the years, I've been a pastor for a lot of years, generally it's not a lack of ability, it's more a lack of availability. And so I guess what I'm asking is, are you available to reach out to others in the name of Jesus? This man just shared his story. Here's what Jesus did for me. That's what you need to do. And maybe have some scriptures in there just because there's some power in the Word of God. This is what the Lord calls us to do. This is our mission as a church, telling others about the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed Messiah. Well, then what are the implications of this Jesus being God's Spirit-anointed Messiah? What are the implications of his true identity and his true mission? Well, we've seen one already, and that's simply Jesus has authority to release the humble. But along with that, here's another implication, and that is Jesus has authority to reject the proud. Now, this is not good news. Jesus has authority to reject the proud. This is not good news for those who choose to not believe in Jesus. Look at verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondered at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Wow, they're all speaking well of him. You see, Jesus was a skillful orator. We saw it in verse 15. Remember, look at verse 15. He began teaching in their synagogues in that region and was praised by all. And it says here in verse 22, they were wondering at the gracious words falling from his lips because his message spoke positively. There were gracious words there, positively toward the effects of the gospel. And so they are really enamored with his speaking ability. Plus, they're rooting for him because he's the hometown boy, right? But notice, they asked this question. They were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And so, though they enjoyed the positive and hopeful tone of Jesus' sermon, the people were skeptical about this hometown boy. They knew him, claiming to be God's spirit-anointed Messiah. This was a little tough for them to take in. And so in their pride, they chose to see Jesus as the son of Joseph and chose to not see him as the son of God as he was claiming to be. They rejected the divine authority of this, quote, local yokel. Now, here's the interesting dynamic. They were wowed by the sermon. Wow, was that great. That, that was beautiful. That was a work of art. 
Here they heard this great sermon from Jesus himself, and yet they did not draw closer to Jesus. Dear friends, beware of having what I call a Teflon heart. You know what a Teflon pan is? Non-stick, right? Well, some people, when they hear the hard truths of Scripture, oh, they love the good stuff about all the positives and all the benefits of being in Christ. But when it comes to the things that might challenge them in certain areas in their life, all of a sudden they put up the Teflon pan and let that word deflect to aisle three, third person in the back. You see? That's not for me. That's for Joe or Cindy or whoever. Beware of that. We all need the Word of God. We all need correction. I need correction. All of us do. And so let's pray and ask God to give us a teachable spirit as we actively listen to His Word, coming in already with a, with a disposition to embrace what God has for us. Whatever. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Uh, he's exposing their thoughts, and he uses a popular proverb here. And in effect, it's saying this, Show us what you can do. In other words, they're thinking in their minds, All right, Jesus, since you claim to be God's Spirit-anointed Messiah, well, then go ahead and perform some miraculous signs. You see, they're self-sufficient and they're proud, and they don't even realize that they are the spiritually blind, and they need what Jesus has to offer. But for them, they think they have it right, and it's for the other person. And so they insist upon miracles before they believe in Jesus as God's Spirit-appointed Messiah. Hey, I'll believe in you if you do some tricks. It doesn't work that way. So he says, no, no doubt you're going to say this, do here in your hometown what you did in Capernaum. One scholar puts it like this, an element of regional jealousy is present. It is clear that Jesus' work at Capernaum, a Galilean town, did not go unnoticed in Nazareth. Hey, do what you did for those people over here. So they're calling for miracles, but it's not born out of a desire to believe. And Jesus responds to faith, nothing less. In this case, it's spiritual pride, and it's even skepticism. Now, we don't have time to go there, but in the parallel accounts I was telling you about, if you were to go to Mark 6, you would see in verse 6, it says, And Jesus wondered at their unbelief. The depths of their unbelief, it's like it was stunning. Jesus has authority to reject the proud. It says in verse 24, notice uh, these are the words of Jesus. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And so these people not only rejected Jesus as God's spirit-anointed Messiah, but they rejected him as God's prophet. Don't forget, he's prophet, priest, and king, right? And like most of God's prophets, Jesus was rejected by his own. Think about it. He lived in Nazareth for probably three decades, 30 years or so, right? I mean, they know him very well. That's Joseph's boy. They know him. And yet he knows them. He knew their hearts. And he refused to perform many miracles in their midst because there was such a depth of unbelief and hard-heartedness and spiritual pride. He has the authority to reject those who are proud. And so the Lord says in verse 25, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, 
And yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Wow. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, this would be a Gentile area, to a woman who was a widow. Well, during the days of Elijah, Israel was in a spiritual stupor. And because of the nation's spiritual pride and because of the nation's unbelief, God caused this famine of rain, you might say, for three and a half years. In other words, he was trying to get their attention. And so for three and a half years, God just shut off the waterworks. And that resulted in a famine. There was uh, very little food in the land. And it says, speaking of these, uh, the Jewish people in this case, the widows, it says, verse 26, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Now, this really got their attention. You see, Jesus offers a warning. He's giving two examples of God's prophet, and these are meant as a warning, Elijah and Elisha. And so what Jesus is doing, this is really an act of love. He's giving examples of God's prophets rejecting the spiritually proud. And one New Testament scholar puts it like this. The comparison to this bleak time of famine and to Elijah's period certainly warns through clear implication that the consequences of rejecting Jesus may involve God's rejection. You see, Jesus has the authority to reject the proud. And it says, though there were, see the text right there? Though there were many widows in Israel, God sent Elijah to a poor Gentile widow to release her and also to release her son from physical deprivation. We don't have time for the story, but for your notes, I want you to check it out later. Write down 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16. 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. You'll see the story. It's a great story. Just don't have time to go through it. All right, now he gives another example. That was Elijah. Now his, uh, uh, you might say his mentee, if you will, uh, Elisha. Notice what happens in verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Again, this would be a non-Jew or a Gentile. It says, verse 27, none of them was cleansed. Even though there were many lepers in Israel, God used Elisha to heal a Gentile leper, but not the Jewish ones, right? For your notes again, this would be 2 Kings. 2 Kings 5, 9 through 14. 2 Kings 5, 9 through 14. Check it out. It's a great story. And so can you imagine the people sitting there in Jesus' hometown, and they are starting to stew in their juices here. The temperature is going up. Hot under the collar, even though they didn't wear collars in those days, I don't think. And so they're thinking, why would God choose to heal a Gentile? Gentiles are dogs. They're not even part of the commonwealth of Israel. Why would God skip over his chosen people and go to these outcasts? Well, one scholar says this, our Lord's message of grace was a blow to the proud Jewish exclusivism of the congregation. And they would not repent. That means they would not turn from their sin. Jesus has authority to reject the proud. This is the other side now of the implication of who he is, God's spirit-anointed Messiah. Don't forget, friends, God's blessing is conditioned upon personal faith in God's spirit-anointed Messiah. There's no other way. It's faith in him. That's the way he set it up. All right, so we come to verse 28, and this is interesting. Notice the response here. 
And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, if that doesn't reveal the hardness of their hearts, I mean, what happened here? Look again at verse 22. It says, and all, the whole synagogue, wow, this is great stuff. This guy can preach. And then we go down just a few verses here. Verse 28, and all in the synagogue were filled with rage. You see, by using these two Old Testament examples, Jesus, in effect, was saying the Gentile widow and the Gentile leper responded in faith to God's prophets. But you, my fellow Jews, are rejecting God's spirit-anointed Messiah. You, my friends, are too proud to admit that you are spiritually poor and spiritually blind. And your response is actually worse than the Gentiles. God is going to bless outsiders who respond in faith. But if you reject me, I will go my way. And you will suffer the consequences. That's the message here. And they just didn't want to hear it. They were confronted with sin, but the Teflon pan, that's not for me. No, no, I'm okay. I'm religious. I can show you. I've got, I jumped through hoops. Here they are. I've got videos. Did they have videos in those days? I don't know. I've got videos. I can show you. Beware of religiosity as a cheap substitute for authentic relationship with God's spirit-anointed Messiah, the one who loves you more than you'll ever understand with an unlimited love, the Lord Jesus Christ. The other is a cheap substitute. And these poor people were stuck in their religion. And they were proud. And Jesus has authority to reject the proud. And so finally, look at the wrap-up here. Verse 30. It's a sobering word. But passing through their midst, Jesus went his way. Of course, this was not his hour nor the appointed place of his death. But he came to his own townspeople. But blinded by their own spiritual pride, they tried to kill him. Something's wrong with that religion, don't you think? Now, as I look at this text, it just gives me a glimpse, and it's, it's really, in some ways, horrifying. To think about the fact that These people in Nazareth are gathered for corporate worship of God. These are not criminals. They're not out robbing a bank or something. They are here gathered for worship. They claim to know Jesus well, and yet they resisted his call for a response. Dear friend, how is it with you when you know God is speaking? Not the preacher, but God, the author of the book, is speaking to you. Do you resist his spirit when he's convicting you? The word convict, by the way, means to prove wrong. When you're being proven wrong, does your pride rise up and the Teflon pan comes out? Or do you say, speak to me, Lord. You got me. I'm guilty. I lay this at your feet. Lord Jesus, take this from me. This is not doing me any good. Take it from me. You died for this. See, the choice is always ours. We can't live on our laurels. Maybe we did it well in the past, but now we're not at that place. The good news is there's always hope for change. Hear me. Jesus is alive and well this very morning, and he loves you more than you understand. 
And he's extending you another opportunity to change. It's as simple as saying, yes, Lord, my heart's gotten hard. I need you to soften it. Would you take this attitude away from me? He'll do that. He's a master at dissipating spiritual pride and replacing it with great humility. It comes from him. It's not manufactured by us. And he wants to do that for all of us. You know, he didn't read the rest of it, but Jesus could have gone on. Isaiah 61.2, it says, To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and this is what he didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't even get there, but that's the implication for those who reject Jesus. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you have yet to receive Jesus as your Savior. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And he says, Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of any kind of works. We cannot earn it. It's received by faith in Jesus. Well, how, how does this happen? Well, John says in one twelve, But as many as receive Jesus... To them, he gave the right to become something. To become what? To become children of God. Who are these people? Even those who believe in his name. It's back to belief again, friends. Do you really take him at his word? Do you understand who he is and what he's done for you and what he wants to do for you? Not 2,000 years ago, but this very moment. You can embrace him by faith afresh or receive him for the first time and experience the joy he gives. Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed Messiah. There's implications to that. What are they? Well, we've seen that Jesus has authority to release the humble. And Jesus also has authority to reject the proud, and the choice is yours. There's a collector of rare books who ran into an acquaintance, and he told him that uh, he found this book in an old dusty box, and he just threw it away. It was an old Bible. He didn't have any need for it. So he took this old dusty Bible and threw it out. He happened to mention that uh, Guten somebody or other had printed the Bible. <gasps> Not Gutenberg, gasped the collector. I think it was. It was Gutenberg. That's right. Oh, no, you've thrown away one of the first books ever printed. In fact, a copy recently sold at an auction for $2 million. And he said, no, I don't think that book could have been worth anything close to that much. Well, why is that? You see, it was scribbled all over in the margins by some guy named Martin Luther or something like that. (laughs) Well, not appreciating its worth, the man rid himself of the written word of God. And not appreciating his worth, the people of Nazareth tried to rid themselves of the incarnate word of God. Well, do you appreciate the worth of God's Spirit-anointed Messiah? You say, well, how, how do I know if I do or not? Well, one evidence would simply be this, and there's a lot of ways to measure this. And, you know, we're told in the Bible, by the way, examine thyself, it says in a lot of places. Do you just crave happy sermons with gracious words? But as soon as you hear the ones that get a little too close to your address, you shut them down. What I'm asking is, do you have a teachable spirit? Because if you realize what Jesus has, the unmeasurable riches that he extends to you, you would receive all of his message and embrace it and respond accordingly. You see, appreciating God's spirit-anointed Messiah leads us in some very, very 
good places. But we first need to know who he is. I asked early on, you know, what is Jesus' true identity? And so ask yourself, do I have a distorted view or an imbalanced view of Jesus? Do I tend to only see him as my Savior? And he is, praise the Lord. But do I tend to choose to overlook the fact that he is also my sovereign ruler? Well, how can I correct this imbalance if I have such? Because we want to have a full orb view of who Jesus is. He's, he's balanced in every way. Well, one thing we can do is pray for a teachable spirit. And then train ourselves to immediately, as soon as we hear God's word or read one of his commands, train ourselves to immediately obey. Because, friends, great joy is right there. It hasn't gone out of style. Let me tell you, you're not going to read this in the newspaper or on the web or in the news. But there is great, great joy in serving Jesus. The thing that people are knocking themselves dead to obtain contentment and peace and tranquility and joy and purpose and fulfillment comes only ultimately from Jesus. I'm talking about deep abiding, not that, you know, one thrill for five minutes or whatever. I'm talking about something that lasts, that can't be taken away. This comes from obeying the Lord Jesus with a sense of enthusiasm and anticipation. Great joy in Jesus. Indeed, he alone is worthy. Why? Because Jesus is God's spirit-anointed Messiah. Let's speak to him in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for not only showing us a clear glimpse of your identity and your purpose, but also showing us both sides of the equation here. We can either respond in faith.